This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. A very good evening to you all on Monday the 8th of May. I'm Fanola Jackson, and welcome to The Late Late Show. This is my first show with Teacher Talk Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in. Tonight we are talking about the unique brilliance of small and rural schools. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening and thank you so much for joining me. Small but mighty certainly sums up many of the schools I've had the privilege to work in. And so we are going to unpack a little more on just how small rural schools manage to punch above their weight and be truly flourishing communities with, let's face it, so many odds stacked against them. What an exciting coronation weekend it has been. We are a nation with the fewest public holidays, certainly compared to others in Europe. So hasn't it been great to have had two in a row? I am loving the four day week, have to say. Such a good opportunity to recharge and replenish. My school, a small village school, had a wonderful coronation picnic on the school field last Friday with parents in the local community. The usual British mix of sunshine and showers And it's been really great, hasn't it, to see schools celebrating up and down the country with maypole dancing, ice cream vans, singing, face painting, street parties and events in village halls and local churches. How wonderful to watch something that future British children will be studying in their history lessons. I particularly enjoyed the moment when Prince William, on the balcony, leaned over to check on the king. He had a big smile on his face and just checking in to see his dad was okay and enjoying the moment. Pure love and respect in his eyes. Such a gorgeous moment. And as always, for me, Prince Louis' antics and facial expressions made it for me. When he was discreetly removed from the service, I did wonder if this was so the Home Alone protection kit could be removed from his person or perhaps he just needed some scooter time outside of the abbey to let off steam. Wasn't it brilliant to see Floella Benjamin carrying the coronation scepter? As a proud preschool play school baby, I gave a cheer to the screen at this point. Floella was my absolute favourite presenter on play school. I read one of her tweets over the weekend and it read, the scepter with a dove represents peace, mercy, equality and love, which is everything I believe in. And I'll be so excited to share this tweet with my class tomorrow and open up a discussion about this. Pomp and ceremony is something we do rather well in this country. Regardless of your views on the royal family and the rights and wrongs of their role in society, Princess Anne and Sophie Wessex stood out to me. Both women are examples of how the world we live in often overlooks the people in the background. The ones who don't shout loud or tell us repeatedly about their hard work, the values they bring and the good they do, but quite simply get on with it. They're a reminder that while the world is full of big names that we hear over and over again, behind all those people, often supporting them, are the people that quietly keep the cogs turning dedicating themselves to service without fanfare and often without recognition. And this got me thinking about all the incredible staff who work and volunteer in small rural schools. There are so many challenges for small schools, funding, recruitment issues, limited CPD, and a biggie, of course, is Ofsted pressures, with teachers having to wear multiple hats and often lead numerous subject areas. How can it even be possible to be subject experts and lead with confidence, energy and passion? Surely the prospect of a deep dive, certainly in the current framework, which many recognise as unfit for purpose, is absolutely terrifying and demotivating. 
do get in touch tonight if you'd like to share your thoughts. Send in a text. Interestingly, only last week at the National Association of Head Teachers Conference, it was great to hear that Motion 31 was passed unanimously to recognise the unique context of small and rural schools. And this represents a very positive step indeed. Well, enough of my rambles and on to bringing in an expert. My guest is an all-round lovely person, top human being, someone who is on the ground, often in the long grass and relentless about supporting and advocating for a real understanding of the sheer brilliance of small and rural schools. So without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce Amy Tinkler, President-elect of the Chartered College of Teaching and Small Schools Advocate. It is so lovely to have you with me tonight, Amy. Please, can you tell us um, a little bit more about yourself and perhaps your interest in the very unique and special context of small schools? Okay, great. Can you hear me all right? I better check that first. Yes, can hear you perfectly. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for that introduction. I think that was Anne's most generous introduction I've probably ever had. Uh, so my name, <laughs> is, my name is Amy Tinkler um, and I am um, a primary practitioner. I've been a primary teacher for 20 years. Um, 10 of those years have been in small schools. Um, and most recently, I've been head of school of a very small school in uh, rural Derbyshire. We started at the school. We had uh, 28 pupils, the school's got more than that now, but um, I was head of school there for eight years and as well as being head of school I taught reception year one and year two and sometimes there were some year threes and fours in that mix as well. Um, so as you said, uh, my other roles are, um, I'm a great advocate for small schools really, I've done lots of writing for different articles and bits and pieces um, about what life is like in small schools and why it's brilliant but different to life in bigger primary schools that I've worked in. Um, I've been part of the Ofsted working group around small schools, which is interesting. And as you said, one of my favourite roles is that I'm president-elect of the Chartered College, which is a fabulous role in itself. Um, but also it's great that um, small school representation in the Chartered College is there. And you know, that's something I'm very proud to be a part of. So thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. I'm not sure I am the expert, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Oh, that's a brilliant introduction. I think we're very lucky to have you on board with your wealth of experience. And of course, Chartered College of Teaching is a huge advocate, huge supporter of small schools. So absolutely brilliant to have your wealth of experience. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with you after the news. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready to go, wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The UK Labour Party will drop its commitment to abolishing university tuition fees according to reports in a range of media outlets. This is seen by some as another reversal of pledges made by leader Sir Keir Starmer when he first became leader. He told BBC Radio outlets that we find ourselves in a different financial situation than when commitments were first made. But he also added that the party was looking at a number of options for reforms to higher education funding. Sakia blamed shifting economic circumstances brought about by the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Student finance was also in the news as financial expert Martin Lewis outlined the three main changes coming in for new university starters in England in September. Mr Lewis was speaking on Good Morning Britain. So-called Plan 5 student loans come into effect in September, but will not affect those already at university. According to Mr Lewis, finance is swinging further away from taxpayer funding and more towards the individual. Those starting uni in September will start repaying student loans once they reach a salary of £25,000 per year, lower than the current threshold. Currently, those with student loans cease repayments after 30 years, even if the debt is uncleared. 
However, new students will have to pay for 40 years or until the debt is cleared, whichever comes first. This means that graduates could end up repaying loans for their entire working life. In more positive news, the interest on these loans will be lowered from inflation plus 3% to just inflation. In real terms, this means no additional interest. Mr Lewis went on to give detailed examples stating that currently, the taxpayer pays around 44 pence in the pound towards funding and the student pays 56 pence on average. Under the new system, the state will pay 19 pence in the pound and the student 81 pence on average. Statistically, 53% of those in receipt of a student loan are currently likely to pay it off in full. Projections, however, indicate that those in the new system, only 23% are likely to pay off their loans. Mr Lewis ended by saying that the new system effectively moved payment for higher education from the taxpayer to the student and could be seen as amounting to a graduate tax of 9% on earnings above £25,000 a year. In Wales, schools are being urged to review their uniform to make it cheaper for families according to a report on the BBC website. However, the report also says that the Welsh Government has stopped short of calling for school logos on clothes to be ditched, instead saying they should not be compulsory. Education Minister Jeremy Miles said families should be told about changes before the end of term, but head teachers said they were being asked to consider change at what is already a busy time of year. The request came after a consultation which asked for views on how the uniform cost burden could be eased for families struggling with the cost of living. Families on lower incomes can apply for a Welsh Government grant of up to £300 to help with the cost of uniform, but this hasn't always eased the worry for parents. TES magazine reports on comments made by Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Philipson at last weekend's NAHT conference. In a message to Head, she said Labour will ensure pupils are taught by specialist teachers in each subject. She commented that schools are facing a perfect storm in recruitment and retention in the teaching workforce and that this was forcing more and more schools to rely on non-expert teachers. The Labour Party analysis found that more than one in four physics lessons in the past year has been taught by a non-expert teacher, whilst one in ten maths lessons are taught by a non-expert. It also said research indicated that some teachers were delivering lessons in subjects where they had no relevant post-A-level qualification, including two in three computing teachers and one in four design and technology teachers. The comments did not include any clear detail of how the party plans to tackle individual subject shortages. Staying with the recruitment theme, ITV News posed the question, do Britain's schools need more male teachers? after research showed that around one quarter of schools in England don't have a male classroom teacher. Some experts argue that it means young people could miss out on having male role models, although others say it's the quality of the teaching that is important, not the gender of the teacher. The article prompted many to comment that during a recruitment crisis, it was inappropriate to focus on gender rather than skill. This was backed up to an extent by a Channel 4 news piece that focused on National Education Union comments that teachers in England are leaving in droves. The report focused on numbers in the profession after the Department for Education asserted that there are more teachers now than over a decade ago, although they did acknowledge that the need has also grown. The NEU raised the concern that within five years of qualifying, one in three teachers leave the profession. These are figures based on those published by the DfE. This has been a pattern for over a decade. The failure to meet recruitment targets has created further gaps in the workforce. Between 2010 and 2021, vacancies in schools have almost trebled for both full and part-time posts. The programme also featured comparisons of class sizes in England, Scotland and Wales. Smaller class sizes are often seen as a way to reduce workload and therefore could make the profession more attractive. The research shows that Scotland has the lowest average class size amongst the home nations, but the UK compares unfavourably with class sizes internationally, the UK having class sizes above average when compared to Greece, South Korea and Germany. The feature highlights the issue of workload and recruitment as another core aspect of industrial action. Finally, to mark the coronation of King Charles III, the DfE announced that it was joining forces with the Eden Project to send thousands of packets of wildflower seeds to primary schools across the country. In an initiative designed to mark the event as well as help children learn about biodiversity, around 40 rugby pitch-sized meadows could be created. 
The plan was met with enthusiasm by some, although many have criticised the cost of this at a time when funding for schools is so hotly debated. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about revision. Lots of our young people are turning to social media for advice and the hashtag study tips is full on trending. Get me using buzzwords. I am so down with the kids. Anyway, this could be a secret weapon that you could untap simply by being a devoted listener and not skipping past me on Podbean. We all know there are millions of factors that come into play, like sleep, nutrition, hydration, actually being in school and actively participating, but that doesn't matter on social media. And let's face it, any revision beats no revision. So here is what I've found. Read it 10 times, say it 10 times, write it twice. No research quoted, no posh name, just a good idea that our kids are listening to because it isn't being said by their teacher. Yet. Another I found was use flashcards. I mean, why have no teachers ever thought of that? It's okay though, now social media is telling our young people to do it, they will. Just provide cards, writing utensils and a link. One of my favourites, give yourself no other option. Remove all distractions. Switch your phone off and put it in another room. You have no other option but to be incredibly bored or study. Yes, this is a technique that is trending. There are loads of good tips out there, all of which we clearly have never tried to use with our pupils. Let me finish with something nobody has ever thought of. Make a revision calendar. Mind blown. We could have been recommending this for years. There are even newly developed methods with catchy titles like the 2357. No, it's not a new Netflix series. You count backwards from the night before the exam, two days, three days, five days, and seven days, and they are your revision sessions. All of these tips and more have only just been invented, so we seriously need to encourage our young people to get on social media and learn how to revise in the countdown to exam time. As always, if you have a tech question or any revision tips, why not get in touch at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, so we're back, and Amy, um, you've got um, a child doing GCSEs at the moment, haven't you? I have, yeah. So my eldest is, uh, he's got a week to go, and then he starts his GCSEs. So yeah, we're in revision mode here. I feel like um, I've used the best of my kind of evidence-informed practice teaching to get him to learn things. Uh, he knows <laughs> a lot of stuff, but I know a lot of stuff too. I think I'm ready for the exams myself. Well, yeah, I too have a son doing GCSEs and uh, we were on of mice and men and looking at um, how to get quotes to stick in our heads today. So, yes, I feel your um, enthusiasm, shall I say, yeah. not pain yeah. for this. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, it's great. It. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to our topic and let's start with um, a definition of small in relation to schools. And there doesn't seem to be a nationally agreed definition of what constitutes a small school in England. The organisation working together categorises schools as small if they have fewer than 210 pupils on roll. And um, working together expanded that a little bit further in thought will introduce a further category of very small schools, um, which includes schools with fewer than 110. And we both know there's some really super tiny ones doing a fantastic job out there too. And as well as, of course, very small and small rural schools, there's also some very small urban schools, um, which include market towns or towns serving a primarily um, agricultural community. And in these circumstances, isolation, deprivation, recruitment and retention can be really, really tricky. And um, they face the same challenges as small rural schools. And of course, there's been a lot of small school closures, very sadly, haven't there? If we look back to, say, 1980, when there were about 11,500 small primary schools, that has dropped significantly. And there's about 5,500 is the figure I've got here um, in 2018. So, Amy, why do you think the number of small schools have reduced and what factors have contributed to this trend? Well, I think there's sadly, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different reasons that um, small schools have closed down over time. One of them is pupil numbers. 
low pupil numbers make the, the budget low and the school become unsustainable, which is, you know, is a reality but a shame. Um, and actually what we're missing, we're not just missing the school if small schools close, what we're missing often is the hub in the centre of the community. Um, and you often find in rural villages, the pub closes, the post office closes and the school closes and then the community kind of loses its heart. Um, and, and that's probably the reason. It's probably a financial reason that the schools have closed, really. Um, and you're quite right about recruitment and retention. In some areas, recruitment and retention is really tricky. In some areas, um, and I know it's very much the case in the schools that I'm aware of in Derbyshire, teachers love working in small schools within their communities, but then that also does mean that teaching staff are quite expensive. Brilliantly experienced, which is really important for mixed-based classes, but often quite expensive, and that is difficult for school budgets. So it's a perfect storm of tricky things that are happening, uh, meaning that some schools do unfortunately close. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we shouldn't really lose heart, though, because at the Beera conference um, entitled Small Schools, Big Issues, and that was only in June 2021, a small schools manifesto was agreed. So that's very exciting news, isn't it, that, that we have got lots of organisations really championing and really looking and valuing the uniqueness of small schools um, yeah. for that. And I think, you know, as you were sort of saying, that success uh, really demands a holistic response from all the stakeholders in the rural environment, because as you were saying, there's so much at stake if small schools go and they really are the hub of the community. Um, and certainly during the COVID pandemic, that really shone brightly, um, didn't it? Um, and just thinking about what you were saying about the expertise in small schools. And I'm thinking that, you know, if we look at countries uh, with remote communities like Australia and Norway and, you know, in other sectors like healthcare too, um, they've really addressed some of the issues very well and are really looking at things like getting the right students, recruiting from perhaps rural backgrounds really increases the chance of teachers returning to teach in rural communities. Uh, they're looking at training students closer to rural communities to ensure that students have really positive and happy, successful experiences of rural schools. Um, I know in countries, for example, Australia and Canada have situated major teaching and research units in rural areas and a policy which has had real proven success in increasing recruitment. And that real exposure to rural practice during teacher training um, is so vital, of course, and really matching the curricula with, with uh, rural needs and really ensuring that curricula include rural topics um, to enhance the competencies of professionals working in rural areas that tends to lead to increased job satisfaction and retention. And of course, that has to be balanced with, with the costs, as you said, of keeping the more, say, expensive teachers on board. It is quite a sort of dif difficult balancing act, isn't it? Um, but just, yeah, just, sorry, Amy, did you want to jump in there? I was just going to say, it, it, the recruitment and retention issue obviously is, is it going to be an issue everywhere? Um, and there are, particularly co in coastal areas, rural schools that really struggle um, with recruitment. And we're all going to have to look a bit differently at how we recruit and retain teachers and how we are flexible um, in supporting mm -hmm. staff who want to work part-time or different hours. Or I was listening to an interesting statistic um, at a conference this week that 40% of new graduates are going to work from home in their first job. And that's something that we can't really compete with as schools. Um, but we're going to have to think more flexibly about how we do that. And it's a challenge for all of the sector, but particularly particularly for small schools. And actually, I was really interested and excited that Teach First were, um, are going to place some of their students in rural schools um, last academic year and next academic year, which is really an exciting prospect because, you know, we're taking great graduates and they're going straight into rural schools. And it's very different to the normal Teach First model of perhaps schools in trickier areas. Um, but it's a, a completely different challenge and it's still a very challenging role. So that's that's a positive step forward. Absolutely. And I'm delighted. I'm just looking through the chat um, and we've had a few texts in, which I think is a, um, a good time to share. And Claire Bills, who I know is a very successful head teacher of a small um, primary school, 
and she's commented that flexible working can really help. It can really help the budget, can really attract the best teachers in small schools. Um, and she's put that she totally agrees um, and says that sadly, small schools are often um, in the community that they serve. They often heard of the community they serve. And she's also added that the new ECT framework doesn't seem to support small schools um, with the need for a separate tutor and a separate mentor. This can be hugely challenging. Um, and that might actually put off ECTs from applying, mightn't it, if they're worried that, mm -hmm. that those roles somehow might be smudged or it might be dumbed down or they won't get the, you know, the real deal. Do you have, you know, any any thoughts on how, you know, the challenges of small rural schools supporting ECTs? You know, it's really tricky. The ECT framework, I think, is a positive step and it and it's, you know, really evolved and um turning out some really brilliant teachers at the end of their ECT years but it is a challenge in small schools because the tutor and the mentor is often the same person because there isn't anybody else to do it so um, I had an ECT this year I was the tutor and because there wasn't anybody else to do it whilst also being the head of, and being a teacher four days a week so it's a real huge amount of work to take on an ECT in school but they bring so much benefit and so much you know life and just they're just out of training um so yeah that is something that's worth worth thinking about but it, it is it is a bit of a concern but like everything in small schools we all wear lots and lots of hats um and so particularly at cartington where i work we, we felt like it was important to take students to make sure that students from our local university which was derby which is a brilliant pdca course and you know brilliant students have always come to us from derby of that they, we give them the experience of small schools and we have placements as much as we can. But of course, with that comes all of the mentoring and all of that that is required. And it's another hat you have to wear. So it can be tricky, um, but equally, we always love to have the extra pair of hands. We had to love to have somebody with extra ideas. So for us, PGC students and um, degree students were great. ECTs, also great, but a little bit harder to manage, just as Claire said. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's brilliant. That's really good to have that perspective. And I like your positivity shining through as always there, Amy. Uh. So <laughs> just thinking sort of about collaboration, because certainly from my experience of small small schools, that collaboration is so important. Um, and I was lucky enough to be introduced to the concept of Ubuntu um, recently um, on a training course, which is an African saying, uh, roughly translated as I am because you are and really conveys a sense of working together and interconnectedness which I believe is absolutely crucial for small schools we, we couldn't thrive without that collaboration and that real sort of working together and and realizing that there's always things to learn and that support network which is which is so key so so Amy what what, what are your experiences of collaboration and have you got any examples to share and why do you feel that collaboration is so essential in small schools and what would you say to a teacher leader of a small rural school who's listening tonight who doesn't really know where to start with creating a network or a collaboration for support maybe is feeling a little bit exhausted or overwhelmed yeah that's that's a great question so i think all the way through my career in everything that i've done um it's always been standing on the shoulders of giants and you know talking to people and asking what other people are doing and finding out and generally people in the profession are hugely generous and will help each other out um, and always give each other a leg up when, when they need one. And actually as a small school leader in a standalone small school, I can imagine that it can be quite isolating. You don't have a big senior leadership team around you. You maybe only have one or two teachers in your school. Um, and, it's, and it's quite easy if you don't, I should imagine it's quite easy if you don't collaborate at all to kind of feel very lonely. So my school was part of a four school federation. I was the head of school and we had an executive head. So we had, um, like a ready-made collaboration between four brilliant Derbyshire schools um, and we worked really really closely together and that was um, you know and that still is a joy of working within those schools and the landscape is looking a bit different now than it was when I first started teaching um, and there are more and more academy trusts 
And there are some academies across the country with lots of small schools in them that are really thriving um, and really doing great things for their small schools because the academy understands that small schools just have to work a little bit differently. They're not worse, they're not better, they're just different. Um, and so, so that's great. And then there's kind of um, informal collaborations and certainly for my career and for, I don't know, just general well-being and being able to ask questions and find out things, the kind of informal networks of people I find really helpful. So Twitter, perhaps Twitter isn't quite what it once was. There's a lot of fighting on Twitter at the moment, but Twitter's been great for me to connect with people. Um, and of course, we run the Small Schools WhatsApp group, which has been a great source of positivity. It's just, you know, the questions on there, there's no question that's too small. People ask anything that they want to know about their their small schools and there are people on there all the time who will just freely give their expertise and knowledge and share ideas so you know that that's a fabulous place to go to um, to collaborate and feel less alone absolutely definitely testify to the whatsapp groups and i think when you've made a connection with somebody at say a conference and then you've got that follow-on support and then as you said you don't feel stupid asking something and you know you get that help straight away then then it that is so powerful because it's a very very tough role um, at any time particularly now with all the external challenges and just to be know that you can reach out and somebody's got you know has probably faced a similar issue um, in a similar context um, is really really invaluable I'm just going to read out a couple of other texts we've had in that are linked to what we've been chatting about just because I think you'll be interested in these Amy and um, okay. I ju just got one in from Jo, Jo Luxford and she describes herself on Twitter as a cheerful principal of three tiny schools wow hats off to Jo definitely a small school champion and she also describes herself as an optimist and an idealist and having had the privilege of meeting her also at a conference um, totally can relate to her being a complete optimist which is exactly what we need right now um, exactly the sort of leader um, of not just one but three beautiful schools so Jo has added that she has an ECT at each of um, her teeny schools, as she describes them. And she says they are amazing. They're making the logistics work, uh, making the logistics work to enable um, having an ECT has been totally worth it. So that's great to hear. And she always tells them that if they can do this job here, they can do anything. What a great message. Because yeah. as that's you know, right. you were saying, you're wearing so many different hats, aren't you? And you're having to sort of juggle an awful lot and react to things, um, re react to pressures, staff shortages, perhaps have things changed, at, you know, at the moment's notice. And if you can yeah. cope with that professionally, it really does prepare you for, for lots, doesn't it? And you've got a very Absolutely. bright future ahead. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, and I think I said, I think I was working out that all of the, um, during my time at Carsington, Everybody who had worked with me who'd then left, um, everybody has gone on to a senior leadership position, even if they'd come in as a newly qualified teacher as it was, because you just wear so many hats, you're exactly right. You learn so much and you know so much so quickly. There's no choice because you get involved in everything, um, which is completely brilliant. That is, real, that is a really good point, Amy, because I think in small schools, you're given that opportunity to lead, aren't you? So, so you know, if, if that's something that, well, perhaps you might not know that you like that, but if you're given that opportunity and somebody puts their trust in you and believes in you, that's huge. So you're building up that wealth of experience quite early on in your career, and it's really yeah. going to stand you in good stead, isn't it? And Claire Bills has also added in... Um, She's texted to say she totally agrees. Um, she's got a second year ECT at the moment. She said they're amazing. Um, they're really happy. Whereas many ECTs she, kn she knows perhaps aren't as happy as her. She said they feel valued and loved, but can't pretend it isn't challenging in a small school. Brilliant point, Claire. And, um, yep. you know, that's br brilliant that they feel valued, isn't it, and supported and loved because, it, you know, it's a tough job, isn't it? And, and you know, so many teachers leave within the first five years. So getting that ECT uh, experience right, you know, that's all credit to you, Claire, I think, doing that, isn't it, Amy? Because that's yeah. brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're one of 
a team of three teachers, you work very tightly together as a team. So, you know, an ECT amongst that team is just a, a lovely place to be. And loved is exactly the right, uh, the right way to put it. Claire is quite right. You know, in a tight team like that, you work so closely together that it is a brilliant place to be. And of course, you don't just wear a lot of hats. You hear groups often. If you teach a mixed day, the knowledge you gain, I mean, it's a fast learning curve, but yeah, a brilliant one. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I used to teach a three, four, five, six uh, class and, you know, my knowledge just increased overnight with, with, with that challenge. Absolutely loved it. Really unique, special experience, which I believe has really um, prepared me well for all sorts of future challenges. So absolutely agree. Your, your curriculum, you become a real expert, don't you? And all those sort of skills such as flexibility and just, you know, rolling up your sleeves and getting on with it that that small schools prepare you brilliantly for that yeah. and now just coming on to innovative thinking and thinking about you know small schools were you talking earlier about how teachers in small schools really do um have to think on their feet really have to be um creative and innovative and school leaders too, in really making it work for their unique context. And, you know, thinking about rural schools curriculum, perhaps grounded in reflecting their, you know, context and the community it serves. And I was reading recently about small school in Cornwall taking their coastal location as a way to develop their curriculum and pedagogy to really suit the local community. And I think small schools, do an excellent job of ring fencing the uniqueness of childhood. And, um, you know, I was thinking earlier about how Martin Luther King, he didn't start with a strategic plan. He started with a dream. And I think as, you know, a small school advocate, you know, I think that's so important, isn't it, that we still value dreaming a little bit in a small school context so that nothing is sort of... Um, kind of ruled out quickly people are really you know allowed to think of all possibilities and think about what yeah. could possibly work in their context and I think small schools do that absolutely brilliant this innovative thinking and really yeah. kind of you know that's what I meant by sort of punching above their weight if, if you see what yeah. I mean in, in really thinking outside the box and just interested to hear your your views on that yeah so that's exactly right it is thinking outside the box. So quite often um, I get approached by um, schools or mats often that have got a small school that have joined them and they, they're not quite sure how to, um, to deal with this small school because the curriculum that the rest of the mat use doesn't fit and they've worked out that that doesn't fit for mixed age classes. And so they, they're asking, you know, how do we possibly make this work? Um, it is about, it's about thinking about what can work rather than can't work. So there are lots of times when perhaps you might have looked at a scheme you could buy in or sat in a conference and it's very easy to think, well, that just won't work in my class because I teach four year groups together. Um, but actually some amazing things can work and it's often about thinking outside the box about what you can do. And then there are occasions when being small means you can do so much more. So something that has just popped straight into my mind is I, with my um, infant class, I was I had a tiny class at the time. I think fish. I can't remember how that fit into the obviously knowledge-rich curriculum. It could have been before those days. Um, but we were learning something about fish, and our local town, one of our local towns, is um, a spa town and happens to have a tiny little aquarium. So between me and the teaching assistant. We got the kids in the car and we all went to the aquarium and we could just do it just like that, um, which was part of the magic of being in a small school. Um, so there, it definitely has to be a can-do attitude. It takes looking at things a little bit differently sometimes, but I don't believe there's anything you can do in a big school that we couldn't do in a small school. And there are some things that you could do just because we were small. Another thing is um, the Christmas play. So by the time we got to the end of year six, the children were so used to being in every single Christmas play that really nobody was shy, nobody didn't want a main part, and everybody was up for it. So children would come in in reception and be 
nervous and a bit shy and by the harvest festival in october they'd be reading in church or singing or something like that and that was part of the magic of being in a small school absolutely the children really do get given those opportunities to shine don't they because there's less of them so if it, and it, they're really developing their confidence and their you know given opportunities to perform and to play in sports teams perhaps more so than than a pupil in a larger school um, that may not get a look in so that that's brilliant and and I love that about seizing opportunities and being bold and being courageous and and it's absolutely wonderful to see that going on in schools and teachers feeling really empowered and supported to do that and I think that links with the culture of the school really valuing that ethos. So that that's brilliant to hear that. So I think, you know, let's be bold, let, let's let's be brave, let's have those dreams. Um, and it, and not to write it off as idealism, because as you've given some really good concrete examples there, um, and you know, certainly um looking at, you know, knocking off any barriers to that. So Amy, I'm just thinking your passion's clearly shining through tonight. What drives you to be such an incredible advocate for small schools? Where does your passion come from? What fuels your drive? Question. So, um, well, I'll be completely honest with you. Before I lived and moved to Derbyshire, um, and there were schools in challenging circumstances, and I was part of a programme for the Department for Education, and I went from school to school in special measures um, and helped. It wasn't responsible for, but helped um kind of move those schools on and then when i had my third baby we moved back to derbyshire which is where i grew up um, and i just got the first job i could get in a local school and it happened to be a small school um, and that one was one of the four that, that then made up the federation that i worked in um, and it was an outstanding school and i have to tell you i found it quite hard to start off with to work in an outstanding school because i found that everybody was so nice to each other and it was really, really hard to work out quite how much you could kind of tell the children to sit smartly on their bottoms or, you know, the normal kind of language that we use, which is very different to what I'd experienced in inner city schools. So I found it quite hard to start off with. Um, and then I moved from that school to another school in our federation, um, which was in requires improvement at the time. And I became head of school there. Um, and it was just a really lovely place to be. It was just a fabulous school. It was just a great community. The parents were on board. Um, it had it had challenges, like all schools have challenges. But there was, you know, they were like our team. They were Team Carstington was what we called them. Um, and so eventually, I I loved the school so much, and we could be so flexible in our planning and do such brilliant things for the children and for the wider community. I actually moved all of my children to school with me um, and I taught my, my youngest, I taught from reception all the way up and I've got two boys as well and they were in the junior class at the same time so I didn't actually teach them um, but they were there together so that made the school even more, have, you know, part of my family. So for the, for the years that I worked there it certainly was a really important part of our family um, and yeah, that, that, and that's why and it was just it's the magic. It's the magic of a small school. It's a feeling of everybody working together and pushing together in the same direction. And everybody knows everybody else's business in a good way. Um, and we all look out for each other and just a great place to be. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, small schools are often described, aren't they, as families. And when the children um, just speak so innocently and naturally about the school being their family. It, it, that's just lovely to hear, isn't it? And just had somebody text in now to say, working in small schools really allows you to know the children so well. Seeing my year twos blossoming in terms of their reading, for example, knowing what their starting points were in reception is so special. That's what's so special about small schools. That's great, isn't it? Because you do get to know the children, all the children really, really well. And one thing that I always think is lovely is seeing that buddy relationship between the year six and reception. It's just yeah. precious, isn't it? It's just beautiful. Really Absolutely. is lovely. We once, uh, we once had an, we were sorry, we once had an Austin inspection and um, the Austin inspector said, we're surprised to see that the year six boys were playing with the reception girls football outside. And actually we hadn't even thought of that as a thing. It's just normal. The, the receptions would come in and the year sixes would take them under their wing. And that's just how we did it. 
Yeah, absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Really, really lovely um, with the children really just, just leading that relationship. It's so special. So just moving on then, thinking about um, Ofsted and, you know, this is just such a huge issue, isn't it? Because small schools are, as we've said, totally unique and their curriculum may not look like the preferred Ofsted model, but that doesn't mean that they don't provide a brilliant curriculum and educational experience for the children and the communities that they serve. And I think, Amy, you've had some really interesting conversations with Ofsted, uh, re the fairness of the um, inspection framework, and you've been a real advocate, really communicated well with them, haven't you, to convey the challenges, you know, the particular unique challenges faced by small schools. Are you able to share any updates or dates on that? And can you offer any comfort to perhaps some listeners out there who may be in the Ofsted window and might be feeling a bit worried right now? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the answer to that. So I've been part of the um, a small schools um, kind of reference group that Ofsted set up. And it's a really interesting group because the, the point of it being set up is that Ofsted really were recognising that small schools were different. Things might look a bit different in small schools. The curriculum still has to be rigorous. It still has to be knowledge based. Of course, it has to be all those things. Because if we're saying we can't do those things in small schools, it's a little bit like saying the education isn't as good. And actually, we know for sure that that's not true. Um, but Ofsted really wanted to, um, I suppose they were trying to find out what were the right questions to ask? What did they need to be aware of going into small schools? And it was actually really positive that they were engaging in that way. And I think it, on reflection from what came out of that was that Yes, small schools have to do things perhaps a little bit differently. Things have, still have to be as great for those children in a small school as they would be in a huge primary school in the middle of a city. Um, but whatever you choose to do in your small school, think about it carefully, make some sensible choices, and then advocate for what you do being brilliant. If you can justify why you've done what you've chosen to do, then, then that's the way to to do it because you're doing the very very best you can for the children um, and so I would say my advice to anybody who's in the window is think carefully about what you're going to do your curriculum will be ordered you'll be doing brilliant things in your school and then advocate for that when offsets come in and tell them why you have made those choices you don't have to pretend to be a big school you're not a big school you're a small school and that's what makes you special um, and just be brave and advocate for that that's brilliant advice, you know, and just really having the courage of your convictions and being really proud and we do what we do because and have, having those conversations and um, and I think saying those words to the inspection team as well, we're really proud of what we do around here. <laughs> this is why yeah. and exemplify it. I think that's yeah. fantastic advice at the moment. That's great. Well, we've got lots of um, comments on the chat about the Small Schools Manifesto. So that sounds like that's been um, a really, really positive thing. And Jo's commented on the chat that she loves that it states that that we um, we are the asset centres for innovation in education. Well, isn't that brilliant? And I think that sums up what you've been saying, Amy, as well, that, that you know, small schools really are the centres for innovation. And, you know, the smallness and the size, ironically, can also be a, a real strength, can't it? Because you can try things out um, a, a lot more easily often, can't you, in a small school? And you could end up being... Um, the shining example for others in a way so so that's yep. really good to hear um you know yep, and i know the, na the national the national association of small schools that's a real beacon of hope and does an awful lot to nurture small schools um, and really really champion them which is great and i was reading recently that uh, the nas has funding to develop a real greater understanding of the nature and types of collaborations throughout the country we were talking about that earlier and um, it's got plans to explore the most effective collaborative systems and structures that small schools are employing to really maximise the expertise within their ranks and ensure the best possible educational opportunities and provision. Um, so it's brilliant to hear, isn't it, that, that, that there's lots of enthusiasm, commitment, support um, for small schools and a real sort of 
I think it's a real um, chance to really stand back and really evaluate the successes. It's, it's brilliant to hear. It's so nice reading on the chat and I can't read them all out, but just the lovely successes and the, and the happiness and love that's really shining in small schools at the moment. And perhaps we don't hear enough about that because there's a lot of doom and gloom and external pressures. So it, it's a wonderful sort of opportunity. I hope this show is the beginning of something that re- people really come together and celebrate you know, the uniqueness and the extraordinary positives, um, you know, and just the sheer brilliant work that's going on in small schools right now. Yeah, absolutely. And Joe's comment is a great one that, uh, and you're quite right, that small schools, they're, they're not behind big schools. They can really be centres of innovation. And it is because we can do things so flexibly, um, and try thoughts without having to turn a huge ship on the way. We can you know, do things the next day. Um, and so that does make them really agile. And, you know, we can change things quickly and do the very best we can for the children. Absolutely, absolutely. And just thinking, we haven't really touched on governance, have we? And I know that, you know, recruiting governors with time, energy, the right skill set is a real challenge, isn't it? Have you got any advice for schools who are perhaps struggling to fill their governing board positions? Yeah, so governance is an interesting thing um, in small schools, particularly if they're standalone and they need a whole governing body of their own. Um, I think my biggest advice probably would be to try and, it's important to have parents and people from the local community and probably the diocese, because quite a lot of small schools and church schools um, on your governing board. But I would also try and look outside because we have, it, it's sometimes tricky, or it's always tricky to recruit governors, but you need the governors with the right skills. Um, and you need to carefully formulate the skill set on your governing body so you've got the right people. But there's definitely something to be gained by having somebody with education experience in a bigger school and um, to just bring a different perspective. Because, um, you know, if you have only people from your community who have always lived in your community, then it can be a bit narrow. So I think that would be my biggest piece of advice if, you, if you're looking to recruit some new governors, although, as you said, it's not, it's not that easy. No, not at all, not at all. But again, you know, they've got a very potentially very rewarding job to do. Um, And so it's definitely worth, isn't it, people coming forward and and taking that on. So just thinking about staffing and recruitment and retention and, you know, as we were saying earlier, it's the very situation where arguably we need the most talented and the most resilient staff and but the odds are stacked against us or they can be sometimes, can't they, with this? And yet we were talking earlier about, you know, if you get the right attitude and staff are really loved and nurtured and then they're empowered to take things on, well, the world's your oyster, isn't it? So I, I suppose it's just the challenge is getting that message across and out there, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think um, that there's... Working in a small school can be great and it is challenging. Um, and it's interesting that you talk about resilience. I have, um, small schools aren't for everyone, are they? But I have had um, Terry who is worked in a tiny island school. Um, she loves her school and she's really interesting circumstances. And she's written a couple of paragraphs for me to read out if we've got time for that, Panola. Um, oh, yes, she demonstrates- yes. She definitely demonstrates for sure resilience and determination in her role. Um, so Mary is uh, a teacher on a ti- on the tiny island of Herm, which is described by some as an island paradise. Um, and she's written a couple of paragraphs. Can I read them now? Yes, please. That would be brilliant. Okay. So Mary's written, uh, she can't join us, but she wanted to tell us this. Tiny island of Herm has been described as an island paradise. 20 minutes away from going by boat, it is barely one and a half miles in length and less than half a mile wide. The island is well known for its white, sandy, almost Caribbean-esque beaches, variety of flora and fauna and woodland. Neither cars nor motorbikes are allowed on the island, which has a permanent resident population of 70 or so, including builders, shopkeepers, engineers. On this island, there's a pub, an 11th century chapel, where we perform the nativity every December, self-catering cottages, a hotel, two campsites, a shop and a school. And since 2005, I've been in the unique position of being the sole teacher in that school. So then Mary goes on to say, um, teaching on such a, on, in such a 
pitchy school on such a pitchy island is exhausting, uh, practically tricky and physically tricky. Um, I live on the neighbouring island of Guernsey, so my commute is 20 minutes by boat and then 10 minute walk up the hill to the school. It's lovely in the summer months, accompanied by the occasional school of dolphins, but the little stretch of water can be treacherous in the winter. I don't get seasick, but I've been pretty scared in the huge waves. My modes of transport have included ribs, fishing boats, small charter boats and the regular ferry, which takes seven people. Um, and then she's written, getting physically fit and resilient supply teachers for the odd occasion when I'm ill has always been tricky, especially in winter. There are only a couple mad enough and brave enough to accept. I quite fancy having a go at it myself. There's only one school room <laughs> and it can be isolating at times with no colleagues. I have a lo I have lone worker status with an emergency radio. Only once have I had an accident in school where I walked into a wooden pole in the wet, windy, dark one January while staying over in a storm and ended up with post-concussion syndrome, which was very scary. Wow. Um, I've become adept at looking at weather forecasts, so I'm usually aware of incoming storms. I keep an overnight bag in a small school and ready meals in the freezer. Multitasking and adaptability, like most small schools, are key requisites for teaching here. All supplies have to be ferried across by boat. And because of inclement weather, the school has to house resources from EYFS to year six. Um, I have to be well stocked for emergencies and keep them all stored in one school room. I have no experience. Oh, she had no experience of teaching in small schools before this, but absolutely loves it. The curriculum and teaching and learning have to be adapted to make it accessible for all ages with one teacher. Drama and literature are key tools and we do a Shakespeare play every year. Um, I was lucky enough to achieve a master's degree in the advanced teaching of Shakespeare and I am passionate about teaching it, um, particularly in the outdoors. Our PE is mainly sailing lessons on the neighbouring island. The children, like with any small school, encounter wealth experiences unique to the situation and they develop resilience, courage, self-confidence beyond their years. I absolutely love it and believe we should foster and encourage such unique schools. How fabulous. I'd love to go and visit Mary's school. Thank you so oh. much for Mary for writing that in. Oh, absolutely. What a role model to to the children. And what can I say? The world needs more Marys. I think I think we need to give Mary her own show. She needs to write a book, doesn't she? Because those anecdotes were fantastic. I'd love to hear more. Uh, I think Mary's just written a comment. Absolutely love working in this. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm just I'm looking at the ch chat there's lots of love for Mary tonight and and she deserves that quite Absolutely. right too wow <laughs> keep going Mary because it sounds like you are doing an incredible job and those children are very very lucky indeed to have you you sound absolutely fantastic and thank you for sharing because it's just so uplifting isn't it Amy to hear people on the ground with all these unique set of challenges just doing such a fantastic job absolutely and you know for the children yeah quite fabulous oh no that's brilliant so our show is drawing to an end and i don't know whether you've got any fine words amy um for our listeners out there um on as we call the unique brilliance of small and rural schools i think you've done a brilliant job of really setting out the uh un unique context but you know, really maintaining that sense of positivity. And I find I think it's been really uplifting. I'm feeling very motivated and ready to face a new week having spoken to you. Absolutely. And I think exactly that. I think my message, and if I'm asked to speak at conferences or do some writing about small schools, my message is always the same. Small schools are little. Small schools are a brilliant place to be both a child, we know that for sure, and also a teacher. Um, and it's really important that we look at ourselves in that way. Small schools are brilliant places to be. They're important for their community, great places to be a child. So we're certainly not a deficit model. Absolutely, absolutely. I love, I love that, starting with that and not a deficit model and just really valuing um, the resources that you've got with the children obviously being the main one, the adults, the teachers, the governors, the community, everybody. That That's just wonderful. That's really good. And I think, Amy, as we go into a new week, a four-day one, um, I'm going to quote the words of Alison Peacock, CEO of the Chartered College of Teaching. And she says, to teach and lead with compassion, empathy and kindness. That's what we all need to do. And your future self will look back with the knowledge that you did your very best, even in the most challenging of circumstances. And I think that that quote just 
sums it up and is so, so relevant to um, everybody who is involved in some way with, with small and rural schools. So it's been a huge privilege, Amy, to have you on um, my very first show. I couldn't wish for a better guest, someone more knowledgeable and passionate. You, you, you did a brilliant job. <laughs> oh, it's been so lovely. It's been absolutely brilliant. Loved every minute of this. And thank you so, so much. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.